Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18plusbegambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hello and welcome to the Game Day podcast from TalkSport with me, Sam Matterface, TalkSport's Alex Crook. And Kevin Hatchard, our European football correspondent. As Arsenal go eight points clear at the top of the Premier League table, Chelsea steal in and grab yet another player from under yet another club's noses. And what's the problem at City? And why are Manchester United so good under Eric Ten Hag? It's all on the Game Day podcast. Talks ball. This is the Manchester derby. This is Talk Sport, where the elite meet. It's what it is. Rashford pokes it home, and Manchester United have turned it around. The new order has been defeated, and the old guard are back in charge. Chance for Bamford 2-1. A landmark goal, the 100th goal. Paul Prowse. Right-footed, strikes it, it's in! Oh, what a goal! Frank Lampard is under massive pressure now as Everton manager. Nine without a win. Wolves one, West Ham United nil. Daniel Podence, three goals in four Premier League games now. The East Midlands is red right now. Forest two, Leicester nil. Brighton three, Liverpool nil. Danny Welbeck off the bench has got himself in on the goal-scoring act. Great night for Brentford. Three wins in a row. Bournemouth still... Bang in trouble. Brentford 2, Bournemouth 0. Newcastle 1, Fulham 0. 89 minutes on the clock and it's Isaac with a finish. After a dreadful run of form, Chelsea are back to winning ways. It finishes Chelsea 1, Crystal Palace 0. Full-time Tottenham 0, Arsenal 2, North London derby delight for the Gunners. Eight points clear at the top of the Premier League. It is a month that may define the Premier League season. A very big hello to Kevin Hatchard. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Great oh, that's Kevin's not Johnson. true. That's not true, Kevin. Tell the truth. You're all right, all right. You're in a miserable mood. It's tough. I know how you feel. It's been a tough week for people like you and me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep the spirits up. But yes, obviously, listening to Crookie on TalkSport describe Liverpool's collapse while I was covering Ipswich against Plymouth. That was, you know, even though the Ipswich game was great, it was a, yeah. a, a little soul-destroying inside. A, I had to listen to Crookie and B, Obviously, Liverpool got smashed, so yes. you know, double whammy there. Yeah, it really did hurt, didn't it? I mean, almost <laughs> hurt as much as Crook using that razor uh, that he's decided to bash out this week. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, and this uh, podcast is available on YouTube, you'll see that uh, Crook looks a little bit uh, like a, uh, a small newborn rat. Um, good morning, Crook. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you for that analogy. Unlike Kev... I had one of my best ever Saturdays working for Talk Sport. I absolutely loved it on Saturday. Watched the Manchester Derby in the Brighton press room. May have got a little bit carried away when the winning goal went in. And then watched Liverpool get absolutely embarrassed. It was great fun. Um, and uh, obviously you did the show on Sunday night with uh, Addy, Akin, Fenoir and um, Darren Ambrose. And uh, Darren Ambrose in good spirits as well, being a Tottenham fan. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know which one of those two had a worse weekend, uh, to be honest. But yeah, uh, very glum-faced Mr Ambrose <laughs> watching that North London derby, as I think most Spurs fans were, because we'll come on to it. But that first half performance from Tottenham was unacceptable, to be honest. It was a polarising weekend for a lot of fans, I think. I mean, Chelsea beat Palace on uh, Sunday afternoon, but the uh, performance hanging on towards the end against Crystal Palace, just to make sure that they got three points, because that seemed to have been something that had eluded them for a very long time. It was quite a painful experience uh, but don't worry because coming to the rescue is 88 million pound Mikhailo Mudrik as European football expert 
Kevin Hatchard. Uh, what do you make of the acquisition? We'll talk about the shenanigans, which is basically Chelsea waiting for uh, all these great players to be linked with other clubs and then swooping in and nicking them by paying them more money and paying a bigger transfer fee right at the very end. Uh, but and the efficacy of that. Uh, but what about the player himself? How good is he? He's good. We don't know how good he is just yet because he's not had a huge amount of football. And it was actually a Premier League manager that gave him the chance to shine when Roberto De Zerbi was at Shakhtar. He decided that he wanted to put him front and centre. He wanted him to be a major part of his team. And he took that chance and he ran with it. Uh, and he was excellent in the Champions League earlier this season. I mean, when you think of what's happened to Shakhtar, obviously the war in Ukraine. As a result of that, FIFA decided that players could unilaterally suspend their contracts and leave Shakhtar. So suddenly, Mudrik, you know, having been brought into the team previously by Deserbi, was the main man, really. He was excellent in some of those group games in the Champions League. They shouldn't have been anywhere near qualifying for the last 16, but they made a real fist of it. He's somebody who plays primarily down the left, but he can play uh, a bit in central areas. He likes to come in. He's kind of a reverse Robin, if you like. He likes to come in on his right uh, and do some damage. He's got great acceleration. He's definitely a very exciting player. Chelsea have probably played over the odds, but Shakhtar were driving a hard bargain. Well, Chelsea have had a problem in midfield, haven't they, Crook? So um, it seems like the policy is just not to play one <laughs> um, and just have a couple of defenders at the back and then Ziyech, uh, Mudrik, um, who else have we got there? Aubameyang, Jao Felix, Sterling, Fafana, Havertz, Mount, just play all out attack. It seems a very odd strategy, doesn't it? to bring in someone, another big-name player, young player, for this amount of money. And Chelsea have spent a lot of money on young, up-and-coming potential rather than uh, real proven talent during this transfer window. Um, well, listen, I hope it works, because if it doesn't, they've wasted another batch of cash. Yeah, and obviously the the reason for the long-term contract, we spoke to uh, a football fin finance expert on the show yesterday, is because... It helps negate FFP because basically the, the the transfer fee gets broken down per annum per year of the contract. But it's a big risk, isn't it? If if Madrid comes in and flops, suddenly you've got a player who's tied to a, at least a seven and a half year, possibly an eight and a half year contract with a year's option. So um, I don't really understand the approach. We hear that maybe Raheem Sterling uh, could be allowed to leave as a result of this signing. He's only been there a few months. What does that tell you about Todd Bowley's tactics in the transfer market in the summer? I don't believe that Madrid was particularly high on their list of targets. Even up until a week ago, it just became a deal that they obviously thought they could get done. Arsenal, in many ways, had done their homework for them. So, yeah, it's a strange approach, particularly when there's other positions that they're crying out for investment. Central midfield, as you mentioned, for a long time is an issue. And still, they need an out-and-out -out number nine for me. That's why they're struggling to see off teams like Crystal Palace uh, at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they need a new goalkeeper. They need a replacement right back. They need a replacement left back. They need two centre midfielders and they need a striker. But hey, just keep collecting those number 10s. It's like he's got a Panini sticker and he only wants the shinies. Um, Kev, just to clear up exactly how you say it, first of all, it's Mikhailo Mudrik, isn't it? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, I've heard uh, a fair bit of uh, Mudric, but I've been uh, asking people and kind of trying to dig in. Mudric is what I've got so far, but I'm happy to be corrected. But yeah, I d the thing about Chelsea's transfer policy, by the way, just quickly, I I'm on board with bringing in young players. That's fine. The bit I don't get is the summer. Why would you bring in Koulibaly and Sterling, guys who are established for, you know, fair chunk of money, and then go and get all of these young players on top of that. So it's clearly something they've pivoted already in that first season. So, you know, it's quite a strange approach. Yeah, it's a good point. And it, it just sort of highlights the problems that Chelsea are having. They've had problems on the field as well, but they beat Crystal Palace by a goal to nil on Sunday, stopping a run of three defeats in a row with a big, big win. Two wins in nine now for Graham Potter and Liverpool to come. Um, Crystal Palace, not sure about them. They've, they've been up and down over the course of the season. They don't score enough goals. Uh, after that game had finished, all attention turned to the North London derby. It was a big talking point all day on Sunday. Spurs against Arsenal. Spurs trying to taunt Arsenal, suggesting that they hadn't won there for a very long time. And they hadn't until yesterday, but they got off to a brilliant start. Spurs were dreadful in the first half, as you would expect, because they always are. It's the 14th time in competitive football that they have been behind at half-time and uh, this season. 
And they were again. And I thought, I mean, if you're Antonio Conte, we talk about this on the podcast on, I think it was Thursday or Wednesday last week, Scott Minto uh, and Matt Holland and I, when we suggested the one thing you do if you're Arsenal is you start fast because you know that Tottenham are going to start slow. If we could tell you that, why on earth has Antonio Conte not done anything about it? it it's baffling. And, um, you know, it has to come down to the coaching because it's happening week in, week out. So he is setting the, the Spurs players out to defend in the first half and then removes the shackles uh, once they go behind in the second. Now, you can get away with that against teams like Bournemouth with the greatest respect in the world. You can't get away with that against this Arsenal team, a team oozing confidence, a team running away at the moment with the Premier League title and their fans are still reluctant to say they're favourites. They have to be favourites now. They're eight points clear. We're halfway through the season. Manchester City are not playing well. I think it's going to be a massive missed opportunity if Arsenal don't go on and be crowned champions. But Tottenham have got so many problems. The squad isn't good enough. The goalkeeper isn't good enough. The two fullbacks aren't good enough. And at the moment, and this is controversial, the manager isn't good enough because he's not getting the best out of that group of players. OK, let's take those two things in isolation. So let's start with Spurs and just deconstruct their team, first of all, because you've you, you battered them and then you've piled the pressure on Arsenal. You can't say anything nice and just say they're playing well, well done to them. This is an unexpected opportunity for them. Go on, do it, lads. Pat on the back. Well done, Mikel. We're impressed with you. You have to pile the pressure on. We'll come back to that in just a second. But Kev, let's talk about the, the Tottenham team. This is a Tottenham team that has had a little bit of investment under Antonio Conte, investment that he's called for. He's got some of the players back that, that were out injured earlier in the season and were out of form as well. They missed Bentancur. I think that's a massive miss for them in midfield. But the goalkeeper, the goalkeeper, who I am honestly was so surprised didn't make a rick at the World Cup, just continues to make error after error for Tottenham Hotspur in big, big games. I mean, what on earth he thought he was doing when he was trying to cross his hands at the near post when Saka fires a shot across the goal? and then getting beaten from 30 yards. I mean, it's, it's just completely unacceptable. And actually, that's a big, big issue for them because he's supposed to be the captain, the leader, the man between the sticks. They need a change there. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, it's a big problem. Uh, and him making mistakes in big games has been a running theme for years. Yeah. Uh, that's not a new thing. That's not suddenly, oh, Lloris has got to 36 and he's starting to creak. But I think it's getting to the stage now where there are so many errors in games that it's very difficult for him to have that kind of authority that he needs to be the leader of that group. And so Tottenham need to be looking at a replacement. I don't think it's a case of bringing somebody in and then hoping he'll compete. I think it does need to be probably a clean break. He's been an amazing servant for France. He's now retired with international duty. He's been an amazing servant for Tottenham. But if they want to move forward as a football club, they're going to have to find a new number one. I think that's clear. I think the fullback positions are a problem, but I think Conte deserves criticism for his team selection. Pape Saab, there's clearly talent there. There's clearly potential there. But he was all over the place and Arsenal just overran him in midfield. So that was the wrong selection. Ryan Sessegnon, I imagine it was about having the pace to deal with Saka. Saka had him on toast for the whole first half. So that was the wrong selection as well on the left-hand side. So I think this one's on Conte, really. And I thought Arsenal, it was the first time this season that I've genuinely thought, they are maybe ahead of Manchester City in this race psychologically because I've always wondered how would they deal with these big games? Well, they've been to Chelsea and won and they've been to Manchester United, not deserved to lose, but they did. And now they've been to Tottenham and played them off the park. So psychologically, they're absolutely there. Okay. Talking of psychology, let's go to uh, Arsenal and trying to un sort of settle them by suggesting, not that they listen to a word he says, uh, by suggesting that uh, it's theirs to lose now. They've put together a really good young group, a likeable group of players that play attractive football. This isn't a a constructed team that's going to grind their way out and try and defend their way to the title. I mean, a lot of teams that emerge out of the pack are teams that sit back, sit deep and then counter-attack. This is a team that harass you in your half They come on top of you. They smother you. They press you all over the pitch. They've got neat, intricate footballers. They've got good defenders. And they've got a terrific goalkeeper. This is a brilliant, brilliant team that has been constructed very quickly by a young manager. 
who's actually an advert for patience, isn't he? He's an advert for patience. Give him time, give him the authority to cleanse the dressing room, and he's built you a team that can compete for the title. That's a magnificent achievement for Arsenal in such a short space of time. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. Um, and I think one of the most salient points you, you made there is how likeable they are uh, as a group of players, how fearless they are. And I guess when you've got a team of young players, it goes one way or another. They either get overawed by the occasion, they get overawed by the pressure uh, of being the league leaders, or they embrace it and they build on that. And Arsenal are certainly doing that. I think they've been fortunate with injuries, you know, barring Gabriel Jesus, all their key players have stayed fit. To this point, obviously, Eddie Nketiah has come in and probably surprised a few people. He surprised me. Um, I was worried for Arsenal when Jesus got injured, but Nketiah has actually stepped up and really taken his game to a level that I didn't necessarily think was there. Partey and Jacka bring that experience in midfield. There's a lot to like about Arsenal. And obviously, they've got a big game at home to Manchester United next weekend. Kev's absolutely right. Even with my United spectacles on, they didn't deserve to lose at Old Trafford. So that's going to be... Uh, a real test of exactly how far United have come under Eric Ten Hag. But I just think they've got to embrace the pressure head on now because arguably, despite you accusing me of psychological games, there's more pressure on Manchester City still than there is on Arsenal. I think we've seen that, you know, with Pep Guardiola's rather salty post-match interview with you on Saturday. I don't care about the Premier League. Well, you do, Pep. And uh, actually, it's, it's more important for Manchester City to win the title this season than it is for Arsenal. But... I don't think Arsenal will get a better opportunity. Liverpool are floundering. You know, they're not title contenders. Chelsea uh, haven't at all kicked on this season. Tottenham are not in a good place. Manchester United obviously have, have a lot of ground to make up because of how they started the season. And this is not City at their very best. It's there for Arsenal. I really believe that. Hold on one second, Kevin Hatchard. There is one team that Alex Crook did not mention during that long list of title contenders. And that's Newcastle United, who beat Fulham by a goal to nil on Sunday. And I watched the game. I thought they were very, very tight at the back. They got a little bit lucky with the Mitrovic penalty, which was a double tap here after he slipped when he took it. And as a result of that, the uh, the referee ruled out the goal. Um, but their top four race is certainly intact. And Alexander Izak popping up with the winner. I actually thought he played particularly well when he came off the bench because he dropped deep in behind Callum Wilson before going up front on his own. And he caused real problems for that Fulham back line. They've got a decent squad. They're incredibly well coached and they don't concede any goals. They keep on winning. Yeah, that's the key, Sam, the the defensive side of it. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's only 11 goals conceded so far. Uh, excellent goalkeeper, a uh, defence that works together very, very well and a cohesive unit that, that defends from the front as well. And I think Ezek's a good point. I thought he looked as if he was raring to go. It's a very intelligent player. He can drop into that kind of 10 role. He can roam and do damage. And he'll have been thrilled to have got that goal after, you know, all that injury frustration. So the momentum is there. And I think sometimes when you come through those tight games, they've come through a few of those now, it just builds that belief that you will be able to find a way through. And look at what they've done on the road. They've gone to Arsenal and drawn nil-nil. They've gone to Manchester United and drawn nil-nil. They pushed Liverpool ever so close and were really unlucky to lose that game at Anfield to a, a last-gasp yes, winner. So, look, this is a proper team. And it is a triumph of coaching. Eddie Howe deserves enormous credit for what he's done. I remember going back to the uh, early stage of the season and having an argument with Crook about uh, Newcastle because he was moaning that they hadn't had to put too many points on the board. They won their first game and then drew, I think, their next six. And I said it wasn't fair because they deserve more points than that and that they would end up being okay. Boy, have they turned it around since then, Crookie? Um, I think they've only lost one game all season in the Premier League. They're unbeaten at home. They've got a two-legged semi-final in the Carabao Cup against Southampton as well. This could be one of the best seasons in living memory for Newcastle United. 14 games unbeaten for only the second time in the Premier League era. So uh, a club record in their sights. Defensively, they are sensational, uh, which is a, a step away from what Eddie Howe did at Bournemouth when they were always attractive to watch. They would always score goals, but they couldn't keep a clean sheet for love nor money. Listen, this is not a Newcastle side in the ilk of Kevin Keegan's entertainers. It's a, a side built on defensive stability. The goalkeeper has done very well. Cher and Botman, one of the best centre-half partnerships in the league. Trippier actually had a bit of an off day um, on Saturday, uh, Sunday. Obviously gave away the penalty, 
his delivery from set pieces wasn't quite on point, but he's been a fabulous signing as well. I think they'll be in the top four. I still don't think they're scoring enough goals to be a serious force in the title race. Uh, Fulham are having a stellar season as well, aren't they? They were unlucky against Newcastle. They beat Chelsea on Thursday night. I was there. They were terrific all over the pitch. They worked incredibly hard. They created opportunities and they did that. They beat Chelsea without Carlos, uh, without um, Alexander Mitrovic and Carlos Vinicius uh, playing instead. Yeah, they had a helping hand from Chelsea's incredibly bad defending and terrible goalkeeping. But they did very well in that game and I thought they were deserved winners. Um, So they're having a good season under Marco Silva. I spoke to after the game and he was pretty positive about his group of players. He was... uh, I think he was pretty proud of what Fulham have achieved so far. I hope they go on and continue that for the rest of the season. They're certainly going to have another season in the Premier League. That is for sure. Uh, Let's turn our attention to the big Manchester derby on Saturday. Uh, I was there commentating for TalkSport. It was a brilliant, brilliant comeback from Manchester United. But Manchester City, what's going on there then? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. It's gone into Mares, into De Bruyne, he's escaped Casemiro, delivered across, coming in is Grealish, and he scored in a Manchester derby for Manchester City to put them in front, in front of the scoreboard end. Here's Rashford in behind, beyond the Kanji, comes to Bruno Fernandes who takes over and the offside flag goes up. And his goal, which he thinks has rescued a point, is ruled out. Rashford says, I didn't touch it. It ran all the way through to Fernandes. Darren Can is being surrounded, the assistant on the far side. United are appealing for it to be looked at by VAR. They think they've equalised. I think this should be a goal. And there it is! The equaliser for Manchester United! Bruno Fernandes takes the acclaim! Manchester United equalise. It's 1-1. Ganacho is onside and he's played in down the left and he's speeding away into the left wing position. He's got three to aim at in the centre. Garnacho tries to tee it up into the box. It hits the Kanji first time. He twirls away from Ake. It's what's it in. Rashford pokes it home and Manchester United have turned it around. They have to wait no longer. For tonight at least, Manchester is simply red again. The new order has been defeated and the old guard are back in charge. Manchester United 2, Manchester City 1. Go on, you can gloat for a couple of seconds there. Uh, is that why you shaved your beard off? Because you're so happy about it. You're carried away. <laughs> 
Listen, let's just explain the beard scenario, shall we? I tried no, to no, do that. No, no, don't explain it. Just say, did, is that what happened? You got really drunk in celebrating Manchester United, Manchester City, and you just someone did it for you. No, that would be a great story. It would did be you a great. It, it would be a great story, but I just had beard. the razor on the wrong setting, and once I started to shave it off, I was like, oh crikey, uh, very dramatic look. Uh, it was a bit of a close shave for Manchester United, wasn't it? As well, after hey. falling behind and uh, the controversy, which has been debated. Um, until we're blue in the face about the equalising goal. But what impresses me about this Manchester United team, and you compare it to to Tottenham, I've already criticised their approach. Manchester City player for player is still better than Manchester United. I think we can all agree on that. But United took the game to them in the first half. They played on the front foot. They had a, a game plan to get runners in behind the Manchester City back line. Probably should have been in front at the break. They are a bit wasteful with the chances that came their way. Tactical masterclass from Ten Hag to do what Danny Murphy has been advocating for in the these type of games and play Fred alongside Casemiro. They did a real stifling job in midfield. Marcus Rashford looked like he would be out for weeks um, at half time. somehow comes out for the second half and pops up with the winner and obviously a key contribution for the first goal. Ten Hag has got these players playing for the badge. He's got the players playing for him. He's uh, cultivated a wonderful team spirit in the dressing room. They look the real deal. He looks the real deal. So at the moment, I've got nothing to complain about. It's unusual. Yeah, it is unusual. By the way, if you're sitting here th- expecting us to dissect that Marcus Rashford goal and, and tell you why it should have been allowed or why it, it, it shouldn't have stood, then you're going to be disappointed because I'm sure you've heard every single angle of debate between uh, Saturday lunchtime and whenever you've downloaded this podcast. And the truth is, is the goal was given. And ultimately, there was an incident just prior to that where Rodri should have been and could have been sent off if the move had developed in a slightly different way, where he ended up clotheslining Marcus Rashford, who was running through the centre of the pitch. A free kick wasn't given for an off-the-ball, a terrible challenge off the ball, and a yellow card wasn't dispatched either. So there's other debates about what else could have happened during the course of that match, and you know, the ifs, buts, and maybes we can discuss forever. The truth of the matter is, it was a goal, it was given, and Manchester City should have reacted better because they had that second half in the palm of their hands. They were on top in that game. They should have gone on and scored more goals. They should have put that game to bed. They didn't do it, and they got punished as a result. Kevin, talk to me about Eric Ten Hag, because afterwards I spoke to him, and he said to me, we discussed the Marcus Rashford situation. I said, look, there was a point where I thought he couldn't run anymore. There was a point where I thought you'd have to bring him off, but you kept him on the pitch. Did you think about substituting him? And he said, I am bald but I, ha- I wouldn't, with any hair on my head, have thought about taking him off because in these moments, at those times, in these games, he has to suffer. He has to sacrifice himself for the team. He has to go out there and do what he did, which was win us the game. Yeah, this is what he's all about, uh, setting those standards. And I think we've every little situation that's come up, he's got right. So when he dropped Rashford against Wolves, brought him on and he got the winner. This situation, you go back to what happened with the Brentford game when he made them all run that difference in distance covered between the two teams, but he did the run as well. Yeah. So I think that just showed that he's in it with them. That was a key moment because Bruno Fernandes, if you speak to him, he will tell you that that was the the, the, the day that they realised that this guy was the real deal. Yeah, because he then, you know, it's not just, right, I'm going to punish you guys. It's like, right, we're all going to suffer together. Uh, and I think the Ronaldo situation fell into his lap. I think that was a massive gift to be honest, because we spoke in the summer about what he could bring. And my only concern was, would the club be willing to give him the authority he needed to corral these players? Because you look at last season, briefings, left, right and centre, players unhappy, players acting with impunity. As soon as they realised that he could drop Ronaldo, that he could marginalise Ronaldo, they thought, right, well, if it can happen to him, it can happen to us. And he was able to put that discipline in. And he's got rid of Ronaldo, who was never going to work in his system. So everything has gone well. They've made some good signings, surprisingly, given the scattergun approach in the summer. He's done brilliantly and the players have really responded. Yeah, they really have. Conversely, Manchester City's players, are they still responding to Pep Guardiola, Crook? I'm not sure, you know. Um, and I've been hearing whispers for a few weeks now that maybe the atmosphere at their training ground is perhaps not as harmonious as it has been in the past. We know that Pep is a, a very demanding coach. 
himself. And sometimes, and I think there's a case for this at Liverpool as well with Jurgen Klopp, sometimes players do get bored of hearing the same voice day in, day out. I think it's a problem for Manchester City. I think the increasing reliability on Erling Haaland is a problem as well because, let's be honest, Manchester United did a fantastic job in shutting him out of the game. And because City have changed the way that they play this season to accommodate Haaland, they aren't getting the volume of goals from midfield that maybe they have done in the past. I think there's a lot of issues for Manchester City. And again, that's why I think this is a guilt-edged opportunity for Arsenal because I don't think it's something that can necessarily be fixed overnight. I mean, you look at the the performance against Southampton in midweek when the fringe players came in, they were absolutely smashed, really, um, by the team statistically the worst in the Premier League. So it's been a really bad week for Pep Guardiola and for Manchester City. It's been a bit longer than that, though, hasn't it? Because if you go back to the uh, last couple of weeks of November, you know, they lost to Brentford at home, which was a, quite a poor performance. They just about got over the line against um, Fulham in the uh, game prior to that. Then coming back, they've lost to, uh, they've dropped points against Everton, which is not something you would expect them to do at home. They were poor in the first half against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge and then managed to win the game by a few subtle changes in the second half. Rico Lewis played a big part in that game. They lost at Southampton, as you mentioned. Now they've lost to Manchester United. It's not like Pep Guardiola and his team to not find a solution to these sorts of problems. Their next game is live on TalkSport. It's Manchester City against Tottenham on Thursday night. Then they play Wolves, then Arsenal in the FA Cup before Tottenham again in the Premier League. And then Arsenal, not too long ago, not too long after that, again, away from home in the league. So it's a big couple of weeks for Manchester City, big couple of weeks for Arsenal. And we'll find out a little bit more about both those two teams, I think, over the course of the next uh, month uh, on TalkSport. We mentioned Southampton, who had already beaten Manchester City uh, this uh, last week. They knocked them out of the Carabao Cup. They also beat Everton on Saturday. But the story probably is a... Goodison Park one rather than a St Mary's one, bearing in mind the Everton board were warned beforehand not to attend because of threats to their security. Gary Mina and Anthony Gordon ended up getting involved with fans. I, look, I, 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 it all looked very unseemly, Kevin. Yeah, it's a toxic atmosphere. No doubt about that. Uh, I think fans have been dismayed for some time about the direction the club has gone in. That said... I think some of the behaviour we have seen in terms of fans confronting players is completely unacceptable. Uh, If there are credible threats to the board, that is also wildly unacceptable and so far beyond the way fans should behave. Yes, we want passion. Of course we do. We're all passionate about our football clubs. And, you know, if if fans have a right to protest, it's about that line. And if you cross that line, then you should be censured for that. Um, they they have misspent money. There's no doubt about that. There's been a, a real lack of footballing infrastructure there in terms of recruitment. But the, the amount of stick that somebody like Bill Kenwright gets, and I, I understand that he's the kind of lightning rod for a lot of this. I wonder if it's a bit misplaced, to be honest. There's a guy who clearly cares passionately about the football club and has done for a long time. Uh, and so... Yeah, it is all very, very concerning at the moment. Yeah, I know I know what you mean. And I completely understand that there is certain lines that you cannot cross. But I wonder whether or not Everton as a football club, and I'm talking about the hierarchy here, not Frank, not his, uh, his team, not the players. I wonder whether the club have actually handled this incredibly badly. Not only mismanaging the football club to the point where they've got literally no money. We had an Everton fan on on Saturday. Um, on the game day warm-up. It was talking about how they needed to bring in this player or that player in in the January transfer window. And I was screaming, they've got no money. And even if they had any money, they couldn't spend it because of FFP. So they cannot bring players in. Or if they can bring them in, they can bring in one or two on loan, on a low wage, because they're so close to the the line of, of breaching FFP that it's impossible for them. But the board aren't communicating properly. Mashiri came on TalkSport the other the other week, and he, he gave a lot of platitudes, and he spoke a lot about um, um, what he wanted to do, and pleading for patience and understanding. But the truth is, is that by not attending the game on Saturday, they diverted the attention back onto the players. They put more pressure onto the players. Now, I'm not saying that if there is a credible threat to the security of the board, that they should have just toughed it out and gone. I don't believe that. But I believe, but by getting to this situation, by allowing it to get this toxic, this much 
angst and, uh, and, and toxicity around the football club by not dealing with it earlier, they've now put themselves in a position where they cannot win. And they've fueled the, the, the issues. They've made it more intense than it needed to be because they didn't confront it earlier. It's a mess. And uh, not only can they not win on the pitch, they can't win off it either, as you say. So uh, I don't see where they go from here, Everton. I do have a little bit of sympathy for Mashiri when you hear him speak because a lot of owners and boards get criticised for not spending money. You can't level that at Mashiri. He spent money badly. And that's why Everton are in the position that they are. As you say, not much money to spend in January. I have done a piece for uh, the transfer notebook on TalkSport suggesting that Michel Antonio is a potential target. You can understand why Frank Lampard would be attracted to a player like him, but whether they have the finances to get the deal done is open to debate. But I don't think this uh, toxicity is helping anybody. Um, you know, it was always going to be the case that if Everton could, if Southampton could take the, the game by the scruff of the neck, if they could get themselves on the front foot, then the pressure would be heaped on the players. There'd be murmurings of discontent from the stands. The reason they stayed up at the end of last season was because the football club were united. You remember the supporters creating a real uh, atmosphere yeah, of togetherness. That was Frank Lampard uh, embracing the Goodison Park crowd. There were still problems even then. Yeah, they were moaning about the board, but Frank brought them in and said, "Like you know, we've got we've got to do this together." They did it. But now we're in a situation where, with Everton, where there is no way out of this, and and sacking Frank isn't going to help. Changing the board isn't going to help. I honestly do not know what is, you know, is going down and rebuilding like Burnley the only way out of this situation? Potentially. Um, and I think you felt at the start of the season they were probably too good to go down. I think that's the only way now. Uh, you know, I can't really make a case for Everton staying up. I don't think Frank Lampard deserves a free pass, by the way, because there's still some talented players on that pitch that results tell us he isn't getting the best out of. What this uh, angst towards the board and the owners has done is actually really taking him out the spotlight, but I don't think he's necessarily performing to the best of his capabilities either. And it also gives the players a free pass to a certain extent because Anthony Gordon, Yerry Mina, two of the players we know were confronted by fans after the game. Well, they, you know, they'll turn around and say, well, you know, stuff it. The fans don't like us anyway. You know, who cares if we win or not? So I think that could have a very negative impact. It's all very negative in terms of Everton and their problem. And you've mentioned the spending you look at teams like Wolves who are having a real go this transfer window. Southampton, who beat them, uh, are ambitious and have already signed a couple of players. They want two or three more. Bournemouth are going to bring in some players. Nottingham Forest, who are climbing away anyway, they're going to bring in some players. So Everton are in danger of being left behind. I think they're going down. I think there's another concern here, by the way, and these are allegations, but they are allegations that have been around for a while. There was an investigation conducted into what influence Alicia Usmanov has had yep. on the club. And there have been allegations that he was present in some way, shape or form on several occasions when they hired managers. Now, what is his role? And, you know, what is the financial situation? So, as I say, these are allegations. They still need to be proven. But that is concerning because that's just more uncertainty. Moshiri, yes, he's spent, but it's been spent in a scattergun way. There's no real structure. The other thing as well is that I've always felt there are delusions of grandeur at that football club. Yes, they were strong in the 80s, but, you know, there's no divine right for Everton to be in the top half of the Premier League. And so I think that has added to that feeling of entitlement and toxicity. Well, look, the, 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 the key thing is, is the club's not run like a modern day football club. Look at Brighton, look at Brentford, look at the way that uh, Liverpool and Manchester City have done their recruitment. We've spoke about that so many times in the past. You run a football club with strategy, with recruitment uh, departments that know what they're doing and decent coaching. If you don't do those three things, then you are in massive, massive trouble. Um, certainly, Southampton's still in massive trouble, but they've got a big win on the board by beating uh, Everton by two goals to one. Nathan Jones, first league win off the back of two huge cup wins as well. Uh, James Ward-Prowse with two goals in the game. The free kick. What was Jordan Pickford doing? Mm. Yeah, starting position's all wrong, isn't it? I mean, that's not... James Ward-Prowse is a, is a wonderful free kick taker, as we know, but that wasn't by, by anywhere, by any means, the best free kick he's ever taken. But 
the first goal, I think we have to give James Ward-Prowse a lot of credit for because that isn't a very James Ward-Prowse goal. You need leaders when you're in times of adversity. I spoke to James on Thursday and he spoke really well, spoke about the players being lost under Ralph Hasenhut to the fact that belief had been sacked out of them. And to be fair, despite the fact he's taken a lot of criticism, uh, including from me, he also spoke really well about Nathan Jones and about how the players love his combative style, the fact he's so spiky um, in press conferences because he said maybe Southampton historically have been too nice a football club. You know, people come down to St Mary's, stay in a nice hotel, have a nice day out. Nathan Jones is trying to change that. But ultimately, you can only be judged on what happens on the pitch. And James Ward-Prowse has proved himself a real leader on the pitch as well. Slightly different role in that number 10 position. I think he's a wonderful player. He's a wonderful ambassador. And, and it does actually bring back into question why Gareth Southgate thought it was a good idea at the World Cup to take Conor Gallagher and not give him a single minute and leave James Ward-Prowse at home. Brighton 3, Liverpool nil. Uh, Liverpool look absolutely spent, don't they? They look exhausted. Jamie Carragher saying that they were the worst defensive team in the league right now. They can get bullied. They get pulled out of shape too easily. Canate and Matip was absolutely run ragged by Evan Ferguson, who's done a brilliant job since coming into the team. And um, what did you make of the performance and how does Jurgen Klopp sort it out? Because he himself said he cannot remember a worse performance in his managerial career. Kev? Yeah, they were dreadful. And uh, the first thing I want to say is that Brighton were excellent. Uh, I think sometimes the tendency is to look at the big club. Don't say it. 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm fed up with this to. phrase. That I'm phrase. Crook to. used it yesterday on the boot room. Somebody else used it yesterday. Well, when a big team loses, the tendency is to focus on the big team. Lose. <laughs> yeah, because that's right. the story. That's yes, the story. True. However, Brighton played very well. Ferguson looks amazing, by the way. I've only seen him a few times. Obviously, all of us have only seen him a few times. He looks incredible already. Um, but the same goals time and time again. The same mistakes time and time again. And I think we can talk about systems and coaching all we want. But actually, if you're not physically winning challenges if you're making basic errors in possession, basic errors out of possession, you're going to lose games over and over again. And so there's a mix of things here. I do think Jurgen Klopp has to find some kind of tactical solution to protect the back line a bit better, although he's not going to compromise on that high line, I don't think. I don't think he'll ever do that. But the players have to take a lot of responsibility as well because they're the ones making the errors. They're the ones missing the challenges uh, and they're the ones who can't pass five yards. So I think there's a mix of things here. I don't think it's all on Klopp. I know the temptation is to look at what happened at Dortmund and think, ah, well, it's the same thing. He ran out of steam at Dortmund. He's running out of steam at Liverpool. He's trying to rebuild a team on the fly. Arsenal mm. couldn't do that. They had to take their medicine and be in the Europa League or not even in Europe at times. Manchester United have had to do that. They've had to be in the Europa League uh, and rebuild. Uh, and I think Liverpool are going through that process at the moment. Yeah. Um, Gakpo, thoughts, Crook? Non-existent <laughs> in that game, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, there were problems all over the pitch. The freedom that the two Brighton wide players, March and Matoma, were given by, you know, two of the best fullbacks in the league in recent years was was frightening. Central, central centre-backs were all over the shop. You know, Danny Welbeck taking the mickey, really, with that third goal. Midfield, Brighton dominated in that area. Adam Lallana rolling back the years against his old club. And going forward, Salah didn't have a kick. Gakpo didn't have a kick. Oxlade-Chamberlain looked like he's playing from memory. It looked to me like a team who've come to the end of their cycle. And I wonder if Jurgen Klopp has come to the end of his cycle as well. Does he have the capability? Does he have the energy to rebuild this team in the way that Kev has suggested? I'm not convinced. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but just worth pointing out that, that we have constantly and will always talk about the successes of Brighton, of Brentford, of whoever it is who's doing very well. But in circumstances where a team like Liverpool gets dismantled by Brighton, <laughs> Liverpool's demise is the big bit of news. Of course, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't tell you how good Matoma was, but we do that every week anyway. Uh, and Solly March, who's come to the party under Roberto De Zerbi, couldn't score under Graham Potter, but seems to be thriving under his new manager. And the fact that the team costs 30 million quid is a massive, massive boon to uh, the uh, the owners down at Brighton and the way that they have constructed their recruitment department and constructed their their squad. And they they left out one of their best players. They've left Trossard on the bench. In fact, didn't even leave him on the bench. They left him up in a stand somewhere. They left him in Brussels. He wants to leave and he's fallen out with everybody and he wants to go and they won't let him. And then him and Roberto De Zerbi don't get on. So that they can afford to leave out one of their best players and still beat Liverpool. So well done to them. 
Um, here we go. Here's the big drum roll. East Midlands derby result coming in. It's Nottingham Forest to Leicester City nil. So I'm just going to have a quick look at that Premier League table. Let me just see where it is now. Nottingham Forest. Oh, 13, 20 points at the halfway stage. What do we think about that, boys? Yeah, I'm going to take my hat off to you, Sam, if I have one, because uh, you have been saying uh, that your mate Steve Cooper will get Forest out of trouble and your prediction is looking very good at the moment. At home, they've become a really difficult team to play against. Obviously, their waveform uh, needs some improvement. They go to Bournemouth uh, the weekend. That will be a great opportunity to, to pick up a, a rare win on the road. But yeah, 20 points, five points clear of the drop. Brennan Johnson starting to score goals defensively a lot more resolute. And again, I think this is a triumph for good coaching because obviously they threw money at it in the summer. That didn't really work. And I think this is just Steve Cooper getting back to basics on the training field and coaching his team to be a lot more solid at the back. And slowly but surely, that's allowed them to play with a bit more freedom going forward and a bit more confidence as well. I think they probably will stay up now. I tend to agree with you. Uh, some part- key games coming up, Kevin. Uh, Leeds at home on the 5th of February and a little bit further down the line, Everton at home on the 4th of March. Those two big games. If they could get six points from that, then they will really establish themselves as a team that are very likely to stay in the division. Yeah, I think this is all part of the process. I think you look at all the players they signed in the summer and we said, well, this is chaos. How are they going to be able to do it? But what they actually did was started off that process by getting the quality in the door in the first place. So now you've got guys like Morgan Gibbs-White, who was excellent against Leicester. You've got guys like Redmond Freuler. You've got recruits. that Renan Lodi, Scarpa looks a great signing. So you've got that quality in there. Then it's about allowing the coach to find what the best 14 or 15 are, work out the tactical shape of things, and then take them forward. And... As a process, it's worked really well so far. We're only halfway through the season. I think this World Cup-affected season has skewed the narrative sometimes because I think you looked at it and thought, oh, they're in big, big trouble. But there was still so much season to go. And they haven't panicked. They gave the coach a new contract, and rightly so. And at home, you have to be good if you're going to stay up. We've seen that time and time again. The home form is critical. And that part of it, they've got absolutely right. And Brennan Johnson looks such an exciting player, so much pace. But the way he took his goals to take it round the goalkeeper and score, but the second goal, the finish, is outrageously good. So, yeah, they're in a really good place right now. Uh, so, Wolves getting better. They beat West Ham by a goal to nil. And Wolves, uh, Liverpool is live on Talk Sports on Tuesday night in FA Cup, a replay. A big game for both these uh, two teams. Quick word on uh, West Ham United mm-hmm. and what happens with uh, David Moyes because it's all gone very sour very quickly. I mean, he's not stupid. He knows he needs to win games if he wants to save his job. But it's been uh, some reverse of the fortune, bearing in mind they were semi finalists of the Europa League just, what, 10 months ago? Yeah, I think the board uh, are still reluctant to make the change, but you know the stats don't lie. They lost a lot of games in 2022. That poor form has continued at the start of this year. The fans are very anti-David Moyes now, and it's always difficult to turn that around once that happens. They're not scoring goals. The new signings that they've brought in, Skamaka uh, and Pakatar in particular, aren't playing to the best of their capabilities. Moyes doesn't seem capable of getting a tune out of them. I think if they lose at Everton or against Everton this weekend, I think he's in big trouble. You know, we hear that maybe a a list of short-term candidates, likes of Rafa Benitez and Nuno Espirito Santo, neither of whom seem to have inspired the fans, have been drawn up as a contingency plan. I think David Moyes is is coming to the end. It was always quite an uneasy relationship anyway, wasn't it? There was a lot of West Ham fans who didn't want him back um, when he returned to the club. Then obviously he's had a good couple of seasons but as soon as it started to go wrong, they were always going to turn. And I think unless they make a change, West Ham are sleepwalking into big, big trouble. So are Leicester, by the way. Only, what, two points above the relegation places, not spending the, the kind of money other clubs are. I, I worry about them as relegation candidates, and I, I didn't think I'd be saying that. I certainly worry about Bournemouth as relegation candidates, beaten again for the seventh straight game, or the sixth straight game, in a row away at Brentford, who are quietly having a very, very good season. Um, Aston Villa beat Leeds on Friday night in one of the most uh, jammiest performances ever. Um, I saw them against Wolves and I thought they were average. Uh, They weren't particularly good against Stevenage. Obviously, they lost that game at home. Uh, But um, Leeds was slightly unlucky. And and Jesse Marsh 
said it was the best 90-minute performance they'd put together. They've got a huge game against Cardiff, who've just changed their manager uh, over the weekend in midweek. Um, it's, it's difficult, really, for, for Jesse Marsh, is it? Because actually, I think he seems to have sort of got them playing quite well without putting points on the ball. Yeah, and I think you you would imagine that will change over the course of the next few games. They are playing well. They do pose an attacking threat. My only concern about them is that they make every game the same in a way. They, that kind of chaotic approach, and I know it's it's part of his coaching. It's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to funnel everything into the middle. He wants to create lots of counter-pressing opportunities. The problem with that is that you can never truly dominate a game. And so it, it's a very wearing way of playing. What they've done is they've backed him by bringing in guys who have experience of that system. So Tyler Adams has come in, Aronson's come in, Christensen's come in, Verber. So they've got those guys who are used to playing that system. I think they'll be fine in the fullness of time. I think they'll be mid-table. I don't think they'll go down. None so I love. I, I, I was so impressed with him when he came into the Italy team for the Nations League. And that was when yeah. he was back at Zurich uh, and he helped them win the Swiss Super League against the odds. He's just a, a pocket rocket. He's so exciting. Always wants to affect the game. Always wants to run at people. I think he looks great. And I think Jorginho Rutel is a very similar type of player in terms of that kind of up and atom dynamic style. He's the record signing now, £35 million from Hoffenheim, Jorginho Ruta. Uh, we'll see more from him over the course of uh, this week. And we, we may well see Neil Warnock in the dugout on uh, Wednesday night. He is the favourite to become the next Cardiff manager, at least until the end of the season. He retired in April. He, honestly, he retired <laughs> last April. But he might be coming back again. You never know. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your contribution. Uh, we appreciate it. We'll be back later in the week when we look forward to another raft of Premier League uh, games. It's a busy old time. We've got FA Cup and Carabao Cup stuff to concentrate on you never quite know what competition you're in when you turn up at a football ground at this moment in time but we've got live football every single night on talk sport tuesday night it's wolves against liverpool a wednesday night we've got the crystal palace manchester united game in the premier league uh, whilst also trying to bring you third round replay coverage from the fa cup as well and then on thursday night we have got premier league royalty manchester city against tottenham live and exclusive and only on talk sport The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds, we set them. Form guides, we've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.